You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Chances are you've paid special attention to making sure your clients feel welcomed and at ease from the moment they walk into your practice's space. Make sure you don't overlook one very important step, their check-in experience. This episode is sponsored by The Receptionist for iPad. It's the highest rated digital check-in software for therapy offices and behavioral health clinics used by thousands of practitioners across the country. With a visitor management system like the receptionist for iPad, your clients won't be left wondering if you know they've arrived, as the software sends an immediate notification to the therapist when a client checks in, and can even ask if any patient information has changed and needs to be updated since their last visit. The receptionist for iPad is a simple, inexpensive way to follow your clients to discreetly check in, to notify providers of a patient's arrival, and to ensure your entire front lobby experience is stress-free. Sign up today for a free 14-day trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. And when you do, you'll also receive a $25 Amazon gift card. Hey, everyone. You are listening to another episode of the All Things Private Practice podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Cassell, joined today by Megan Neff, they are a psychology resident in Oregon and the moderator of Neurodivergent Insights, a Instagram page that gives a lot of education around autism and ADHD and, and parenting um, autistic children and neurodiversity in general. It's very, very helpful. They have a wonderful following, wonderful content. Highly recommend um, following that page. And I really appreciate you making the time to be here. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this. So before we hit record, um, we're kind of talking about autism, late autistic diagnoses, um, ADHD in general, and being entrepreneurs, therapists, helpers, and and how that kind of manifests. And just wondering if you would, wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about your own story and coming to run Neurodivergent Insights, because I really do believe it's one of the more helpful social media uh, handles that I've come across in a long time. It's helped me quite a bit, even with my own like verbiage and language and things that I experienced. So yeah, take us through a little bit of that journey and where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, on one hand, it feels like an unconventional journey. And then on the other, the more late in life diagnosed people I meet, I'm like, oh, actually, my story feels really classic. Um, <laughs> so I kind of sketch, I've always had mental health issues, you know, in childhood and adolescence, kind of OCD in childhood, depression, anxiety, but just always figured it was those those things. Um, and then it was actually a year ago, like I'm, I'm still pretty new to this process. It was a year ago that my daughter and I were having a conversation after she'd had a kind of significant meltdown over interpreting something literally. And she, she had been diagnosed with ADHD in early childhood. Again, classic autistic story, first diagnosed ADHD. And we started talking with her. I was like, you know, is it, is it possible maybe this is autism? Let's look at this together. And um, I have this really fun memory. We sat side by side and we found page, 
Paige Lale on TikTok. We've, we've found a bunch of her videos and I kind of like looked through them before I shared them with her. She's a preteen. And both of us were just having this aha moment of her life made sense to her for the first time. Me parenting her made sense for the first time. So we started the process for her. And then of course, autism became a special interest as things do for my brain. And I started down the deep dive. I learned typically when a child's diagnosed autistic, one of the parents is at least on the broader autism phenotype. So at first I was like scanning my husband and his family tree. And then the more I was reading about autism in women, I was like, oh my gosh, it's me. So here I was a month away from graduating with my doctorate in clinical psychology and just now seeing autism in my daughter, autism in myself. Fast forward, she's been diagnosed, I've been diagnosed. And once I saw the pieces come together, it was kind of one of those pattern finding aha moments. I don't know if you've had any of these, but I've, I've experienced these. I, a lot of the clients I work with experience these of like, we see a pattern out there and it's often based on a social issue. And it's like, oh my goodness, everyone needs to know this. So I was seeing, right? Like we see things like borderline personality disorder and all these other things diagnosed so often in women and autism so underdiagnosed. So that really lit a fire under me of if I have the highest degree possible in the mental health world and I didn't see it in my daughter, in myself, in my, in my clients, I knew other people were missing it. So my first series, Misdiagnosis Monday, is really what took off. And that's where I was comparing comment misdiagnoses. So I had no plans of it becoming what it has. I started with my personal Instagram, which was 300 people. And I came out, which was terrifying. And then just slowly over the year, I've been creating content as it's my special interest. And it seems to be resonating with people, which is why it has become what it is now. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that. And I think that we're seeing this so much more often in terms of late diagnoses, right? Especially, like you said, for women that where it goes misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed or diagnosed personality disorder, diagnosed ADHD, diagnosed anxiety, like, but the autism uh, diagnosis doesn't come very often. And if it does, it's later in life. But what I like that you really said is that it felt like everything kind of came in, into place for not only you and your parenting style, for your daughter and her experience and for you and your experience, right? Like, Mm-hmm. Isn't there something beautiful in the validation, although there is also the acknowledgement of the grief and the torturous process that yes. we go through on a day-to-day basis? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's such a complex process. I love how you capture all of that there. Of, And it very much was that for me. It was a, everything clicked into place. You know, I'd been, I started doing depth therapy when I started my doctorate, just because it was like, well, this is a good idea. If I'm going to be doing therapy, I should like do some depth work. So I'd been in therapy for about four years and I felt like I had a million mysteries that I just, I was essentially coming to terms with, I'll never know why certain things are the way they are, why I'm wired this way. I just need to learn to embrace it. I never thought I would have an answer to these millions of mysteries about just how I experienced the world, how I experienced myself. So it was a like I talk about this in some of my writing, it felt like I became aligned with my body for the first time ever because I understood it. And so there was a deep coming to alignment with this diagnosis. And yes, the grief, like 
there is grief. And I think it's so important to create space for that. I'm all about affirming autistic identity, but I am now coming to terms with limits that I was hoping were like seasonal limits. It's like, no, I, I never will. Do, there's a lot of things I'll never do that other people can do. And I'm, I'm grieving those limits. Yeah. I, I, I truly appreciate you sharing that. And I think that so often gets overlooked. I know that my diagnosis is much more recent. It's been about six months and okay. maybe a little bit longer, actually. I don't even, I can't fucking track time anymore. <laughs> that time. <laughs> I, really, thing. I know time blindness and COVID where I'm like, I, I don't even know. Did I leave my house today? Um, but, you know, I think that for so long, similarly to you, I was like searching for this answer. Why mm -hmm. does my life feel the way that it feels? And what I was really mm -hmm. experiencing so profoundly, I had been I, diagnosed ADHD like six, seven years ago. And we all know that mm -hmm. like young mm -hmm. white men get diagnosed with ADHD way quicker than most other people. Absolutely. It makes sense. I was like, all right, interests, right? They change. I, I lose interest. I gain interest. I'm mm -hmm. excited. I'm not. Sometimes I can't pay attention. Okay. That makes sense to me. And then like going through the next couple of years, I'm like feeling this really internally conflicting and, and borderline torturous mm -hmm. just existence of life where you could be surrounded by people who love and care about you, but you can't always connect or land or take it in. And Oh my gosh. Thinking like, what the yeah. fuck is wrong with me? Like, what is yeah. wrong with me? Why does this existence have to be so disconnecting mm -hmm. and isolating? And um, what ended up prompting this, which seems kind of strange, perhaps, is like I went and I was at a conference in Hawaii last August and I went and saw the Anthony Bourdain movie because I was always a big Anthony Bourdain fan. Mm -hmm. Kind of explained the process of like wanting to be around people, not feeling connected to them, never feeling truly loved mm -hmm. or embraced or seen always wanting to be on the go. And I was like, that, ex that kind of sums up my life. And my diagnosis was so validating, but I had to process like the grief of the validation first of like, one, okay, this makes a lot of fucking sense. Two, I wish I had known sooner because maybe life could have been a little bit more manageable. Um, three, now it explains the collection of like Garfield stuff I had, and puck <laughs> stuff and beanie babies and like, all this fucking shit that like, as a child and teenager, I'm like, well, I just think this is like, this is normal, right? Like I have 200 Garfield ceramics on a shelf in my room. And like, mm -hmm. so uh, the grief process was lengthy and heavy, but at the same time, I have never felt more aligned with who I am in my life mm -hmm. until, till the last couple of months. And that, that has been really liberating in some ways. Yeah. 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 I got um, chills when you talked about the kind of, I'm around people I love and I just can't, uh, like take it in. I, I feel like I described almost a similar thing to my therapist of b b before I knew of, I feel like I'm living behind pexiglass and I just can't get into my experience. And I didn't have language to realize, like for, for me, I, I, I shut down. So I go parasympathetic mode. And so if I'm in a room of more than probably three or four people, or if like two cars pass me and there's multiple sounds, like I numb out, like I low grade dissociate. So most of my life, and that's one of the biggest griefs of being autistic is I can't enjoy things that are supposed to be enjoyable, like weddings or events or graduations or a table of like a dining room table with, you know, six people. It's, I just numb out during those events and it's, I can't get into the experience of life. It's really painful. 
you know, to even hear you say that because that is so identifiable for me and for so many others. And a lot of people who just can't put that into words or at least express it in a way that makes it feel like, okay, this makes sense to me. And a lot of people in our lives probably really don't get that. So mm -hmm. <laughs> what has your experience been with that? I mean, weddings, din like dinner parties, socializing. I, I can relate to all of it. I shut down yeah. too. And weddings for me, it's like, I'm going to reach for unhealthy coping skills to be able to be here, or I'm just literally not going to be able to be here. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, it's been for the last couple of years with COVID, like there, I've, there's just not been those events. And then I've just stopped going, which um, at some point I probably should push myself a little bit or I, that's an interesting thing I just said. I don't know if I should push myself. I, I think value consistently consistency. I think there's certain events that because of values I choose to go to, even though I know I'll just be numbed out. Um, I don't think I'm answering your question. I think your question was how have people responded to this? You know, my husband has found it helpful. He used to, when we'd be at an event, he'd come up to me and he'd be like, are you okay? Which I would experience as kind of annoying because it'd be a sensory demand coming in of like, are you okay? Are you okay? And I'd be like, I'm fine. Stop. <laughs> like, um, now, you know, we had, I think it was a family gathering in April and I was fogging out and I asked him afterwards, I was like, how was that for you that you were seeing me kind of, you were seeing me as being autistic. And he was like, you know, it's actually nice just to know what was going on. Like, I just knew, okay, Megan's sensory overloaded and she'll be fine when we get home. She'll maybe need to like go for a walk to decompress or whatever. But it was just nice to understand what was happening to you versus worrying about like, is she okay? Is she okay? It sounds like feeling seen in a lot of ways then and mm -hmm. having your partner be able to at least take that in from a different perspective. Um, mm -hmm. And you did answer the question both ways, but, um, you know, I, and I think it was similar for my wife. Like I had this diagnosis process. It was overwhelming. I already anticipated the result being the result, but I didn't want to admit that. I don't think. And mm -hmm. she and I, and a couple of close friends and I had these conversations about this and she was like, well, I think I always knew this about you though. Like, I don't see why this would be any different now that we have a label for it, which was great to hear, right? That feels like, okay, validation in some ways, but it also feels like, yeah, but I need to own this experience. Like I need to be able to embrace it. Otherwise it's just going to come with like shame and guilt and <laughs> even further disconnection and loneliness. So it, it's really been an interesting journey and to be able to see people like yourself and other people out there just talking about it openly. I think it's helping like shed some light and illuminate the fact that there are so many people out there who are mm -hmm. undiagnosed autistic or ADHD and just don't have the resources, don't have the ability or simply maybe just have been misdiagnosed. Like you've mentioned several yeah. times and yeah, that's, that just feels painful because so many people are also going through life and experiencing it in a way where it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so alienating. It's alienating from ourselves when we don't have a narrative to wrap around our experience. And then it's hard to form authentic connections when we're alienated from ourselves. Yeah. Can I, can I, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I was just, I was wondering if I could throw a question your way. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I thought of it when you were talking about your own experience of diagnosis and kind of creating space for it. 
Um, I recently came across an article that talked about how women and genderqueer people tend to experience the diagnosis as more liberating and, and men tend to experience it um, with more grief. And I was, I, I thought about that when you were talking, I was curious if you have any thoughts about why that might be, or if that matches your experience. Cause I, I hear both when you talk about it, both the liberation, but also the, the, the shame and the grief that it brought up. That's a good question. <laughs> it definitely brought up both. I mean, the liberation, I think feels like, again, like alignment of, okay, this is why your brain works the way that it does. This is why you socialize the way you do. This is why you, you know, take an energy the way that you do. So in a very literal sense, it's easy for me to then say like, okay, like this now makes sense, right? Like this is easy to just start to conceptualize in that manner. And I think the grief part came so intensely. The shame is always there for a lot of reasons, but like the grief part really washed over me because it was like, I just kept thinking and flashing back to like inner child wounding and then like mm -hmm. traumatic experiences throughout life. And just thinking like if we had the verbiage at the time or if mm -hmm. my parents had been aware or like if any of these things had have happened, could life have maybe been easier? And maybe mm -hmm. the answer is no, but there was this grief for like inner child, Patrick of like, okay, yeah. growing up, maybe, maybe you could have not felt so alienated or maybe like, yeah didn't always feel so disconnected and alone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what really brought up a lot of sadness for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, huh. The that's, it's interesting to think about the research though, in terms of like how people experience these diagnoses. And I do, I could understand why it would feel liberating as well. Um, it just feels like, I guess, if society tells you you're supposed to act and, and interact a certain way all of your life and you're masking, right? And we can talk about masking and how painful that is. But then when you can unmask in a way, and I know so many people don't get to, mm -hmm. it, I think that's the liberation is the unmasking. Like you said, coming out on social media for you, I'm sure was a huge fucking step. And I'm sure it was really <laughs> scary to like be like, hey, um, this is mm -hmm. this is who I am and this is how I experience life. And even when I got the diagnoses from the psychologist that I worked with, there was a part of me that rejected it. You know, there was a part of me that was mm -hmm. like, no. And my mind immediately went into like an ableist mode of like, I'm high mm -hmm. functioning though. I have multiple yeah. businesses. I have a master's, you know, like all of those things start running through my head. And then I think there can also be an association of like, what's the immediate association when you think about autism. And I worked in group homes in New York and I was like, this isn't me. And yeah, then I had to yeah. do so much learning and being like, oh my mm -hmm. God, I'm so ill-informed on this. And this mm -hmm. has been my entire life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that really speaks to, there's so much deconstructing we have to do to, to see ourselves in, in the diagnosis. I remember as part of my training, like you, you take all the personality assessments that you end up, you know, that I'd be giving to clients. And I remember on one of the personality assessments I took, um, they give automated reports and it pops up like possible things to be looking at. And autism came up as like possible thing to like for further review. And I remember being like, what the hell? Like, no way. And, then, and all of that, I actually am really glad I have that moment because it's a moment of, I can really see all of my ableism. I can go back to the moment and like the, um, the emotional reaction I had to, to seeing that on that paper and how much I wanted to push against that and be like, no way. Like, yes, I like my routines and yes, I have sensory issues, but there's no way I'm autistic. Um, this report is shit. Like, 
<laughs> there is just, it was so visceral and so deep. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that a lot of late diagnosed and adult diagnosed um, autistics have that experience because throughout <laughs> most of your life, you've probably had some of this stuff coming up. You didn't know what it was. Maybe you rejected it. Maybe you thought this could be a potential possibility, but that brings up a lot of shame and stigma. Mm -hmm. And I'm not willing to own that or embrace that. And, you know, I had gotten, when I had been diagnosed with ADHD years ago, the moment I sat down with this psychologist who I'd never met before, she was like, are you autistic? And I was like, what? And I was like, I'm, huh. she's like, yeah, your expression is just so flat. Like, I just have to imagine that you're autistic. And I was like, I don't even know you. Like, I just feel uncomfortable coming here to do testing. But in reality, I mean, now I'm looking back at that. I'm like, huh, okay. Like, that was a very, I feel like it could have been bad bedside manner in a way, but at I the was, same time. I was going to ask, yeah, like, <laughs> like, I don't know if to give props to that psychologist or like, because I think that's awesome that she was willing to bring it up because um, most psychologists are like afraid of that word. But yeah, yeah. that that's a really... Um, well, it's a really direct way. <laughs> and it hit me like, right? One, we don't have any rapport. And for those of yeah. you who are therapists listening or our therapy clients, like rapport matters and bedside manner matters. And I'm like, if I had known you for a session or two, maybe I would be much more open to receiving that. Mm -hmm. But that immediately led to a shutdown of like, fuck no. Yeah. And then I learned, I noticed thinking about that experience right now that I then started to immediately mask in that environment oh, where I started like wow. smiling more where I started laughing more, where I started paying attention more to like her, her body and her mm -hmm. like head movements. And I was like, I am going to have to mask now so that I, and I obviously was not in, you know, consciously doing this or aware, but like, I am not getting diagnosed like this. Like I am here for ADHD assessment and that's the way I'm leaving yeah. with this stuff, yeah. you know? And yeah, it's just very interesting to think back about situations where we are masking all the time. Right. And you were talking mm -hmm. about unmasking and how torturous it is to mask all the time the other day on your social media. Do you, you want to talk about that? Because I think it's such an important part of, of going through life with neurodiversity. Yeah. Yeah. And I, part of why I talk about it is because, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, um, questions like what are the support needs of those of us whose society would deem high functioning? Um, and even coming into some pushback, around why, like, why would someone like me get diagnosed, right? Like I can pass as non-autistic if I choose to. And I think it's such a holistic centered way of thinking about autism of like, well, if you don't have social communication, like difficulties, you're fine, which I do have difficulties. They just show up differently. Um, they're, they're more subtle, I guess, but there's nothing about my experience of autism that's subtle and it, masking it's, it's so much more than social mimicking. It's, it is a kind of, I'm going to vacate my personhood to figure out like who is in this room, who they need me to be. I'm going to become that. I'm going to become a chameleon. And it, it comes at a great cost, a cost of, again, that alienation of self. Um, we have such a diffuse sense of who we are if we're always responding to the environment. And then even just on an energy level, so there's this really interesting study that I think Monk et al, we, we can link it in the notes if folks are interested. They were comparing social anxiety to autism. And what they found is that during social interactions like this, 
the relationship between the amygdala, the fear center of the brain and the prefrontal cortex is, is kind of more emphasized for the autistic brain. The prefrontal cortex, of course, that's where our executive functioning is, where we do all of our kind of labor. Um, and then for non-autistic people, the amygdala to the temporal lobe was, was stronger, which is how kind of taking in facial expressions and emotions. So again, it's all happening on an intuitive way. So when you're masking, there's just so much that you're putting on your prefrontal cortex. It is exhausting. So like for me, when I was doing an eight to five in the world, I'd come home and I'd be, the way my family would describe it, I'd, I'd be kind of, I'd be semi-verbal. Like I'd be very foggy. I'd go lay on the couch and all of my time at home was recovering so I could go back out in the world. Now I realize it's like, oh my goodness, I was totally exhausted. My brain was fried from decoding and interpreting and then, you know, telling my body what to do. Um, I've had chronic fatigue for about 10 years and I'm sure it's related to masking. So this is a very long-winded way of answering your question of masking is so much more than just like scripting and rehearsing. It is, we're overriding our bodies and our body's tendencies to regulate and we're putting so much demand on our bodies. And so of course, we're going to see things like depression, anxiety, chronic fatigue, substance abuse, when someone is chronically masking. I like that that was long-winded because it's very, it's very clear how you can lay that out for someone who really doesn't understand. Because I think what happens, and trying to choose my words carefully, <laughs> um, I think what happens is that people just assume that, you know, like you said, it is a social construct. We're just like, being chameleons, I hear the word even codependency getting turned thrown around at times. Like you're just trying to adapt your your environment to please someone or whatever the case may be. But then the the differentiation between social anxiety and autism and the overlap that can look like in social situations with sensory overload. But mm. like you're saying, the amount of energy that goes into masking, there is a cost. Like yeah. to be able to show up to a, a wedding, the show up mm -hmm. to an event, to know preemptively, this is going to cost me days or hours of my life to recover from. And this may then lead to severe depression, anxiety, hopelessness, potential suicidality, substance use to try to get back on my feet to do it again. And I yeah. think because people don't recognize it or don't understand the process, it can look very much like, like we said, personality disorder, right? Um, like we can say all sorts of different, um, reactions to this, even hearing attention seeking sometimes is a, is a mm -hmm. verb that we, or a, a, a subject that we throw around a lot. And I just think about so many times in my life where I can present as like a, an extrovert in social situations. Mm -hmm. I'm good at hosting. I'm good at gathering. I'm good at connecting. I host entrepreneurial retreats. I did one in Ireland. I cannot tell you how long I had to recharge from that. It was about a month where I, I couldn't yeah. function, like couldn't yeah. get out of bed, couldn't stop watching Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings on repeat. <laughs> <laughs> but the difference for me now, learning this diagnosis, learning about myself, having good support systems in place is I think unmasking for me, and it's very privileged to say this, is that I can openly speak about it to my social mm -hmm. support system, my friend group, my, my wife, and they get it. So they check in on me and they, they're like, we know what you need. We're going to leave you be. And we know you're okay. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people get to have that type of support. And 
have to get up and do the fucking nine to five grind every day. And it's like, no wonder why the rest of the, your life behind the scenes is just completely falling apart because you can't attend to it. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate you naming the privilege. And I think when it comes to masking, privilege is a really important part of the conversation. Um, we're, we're both in a position of privilege in that we're, we own our own businesses. We can control our, our schedules um, and our rhythms. The, the other piece around privilege and masking is that sometimes masking is the less of two evils um, in the sense that, and it's not like unmasking, it's not like it's this wonderful cure-all. If you're choosing to unmask in public, you then are dealing with the sensory load of people looking at you funny or like emotionally taking in how people are responding to you. That's also exhausting and takes a toll. So it's not like there's one good option here. It's like there's two shitty options. And and um, I'm also talking as a white person, right? Like masking is so different when, when we start talking about race and threat and danger. Um, this is why, like, you will never hear me publicly come out as anti-ABA in all contexts because some families, for some people, that is the less of two evils. Um, if, for example, you have a Black autistic boy, it is in danger to their life to have a meltdown in public. And so when it gets to masking, I think I think it's so important to bring awareness of the cost of masking. I also think nuancing it with privilege and understanding racial dynamics um, is also so important. So I, th- that is the one downside of Instagram is you can't host like super nuanced conversation in one reel or one post. Um, but these right. conversations are, are just so complex. They are so complex. And I'm so glad you named that. Because for trans people and for people of color, unmasking can be a and masking can be a matter of life and death and exactly being in society, walking down the street, using a fidget toy, like pacing or, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. whatever you're doing and stimming in general. I mean, that literally has been the matter of life and death for people in this country. Yeah. And I also like that you bring up the social media component because on Instagram, on TikTok, you can't get all of this information across Mm -hmm. it in a 30 second, one minute clip. I mean, you just can't. And I think that's why it's important that there's so much information being out there. But there's also the downside of a lot of misinformation being out there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a balancing act. And I do like that you name that unmasking is not like this ultimate liberating factor either. Like it is important to unmask, but it's also important to acknowledge like where you unmask and how you Mm -hmm. do so and how it still impacts you regardless. Like I know you mentioned like sensory soothing and you know, potentially like darkness and and music or whatever the case, whatever you need playing with your animals, anything you need to do at home, that still comes with a cost, right? Because Mm -hmm. unmasking at home is great. It's safe. It also means you can sometimes further disconnect yourself from a world that you already feel disconnected from. Yeah. 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 Which again, that's kind of this terrible paradox a lot of us are in of um, to move toward like values I have or people that are important to me, it requires a great deal of energy expenditure. Um, and it, I'm, this is kind of where I'm at in my therapy right now. If I'm trying to figure out like how to build a life that works for me of, I, I barely leave my house now. Um, and I, you know, I do teletherapy and I, I have meaningful connections, but it's this question of how much do I, I want to expend energy 
to get connected to communities that are like embodied communities? And how much do I want to protect my energy and my sensory system? And it's hard. Like, it's really hard to find that balance of living consistently with my values of community and connection while also honoring my very real energy limits and sensory limits, I would say, more so than all of those are connected. It is really fucking hard. Yeah. It's just really hard to show up and do things consistently and try to acknowledge the fact that certain people in our lives really almost require us to show up or at least would prefer that we do Mm -hmm. and trying really hard to prioritize that. And also, like you said, energy expenditure and just protecting it as much as we can. It's, it's, it's such a fine line and balancing act. And I Mm -hmm. think that we miss the mark a lot sometimes when we push ourselves too much for whatever reason. And then there's a cost associated with that too. And there's a cost associated with being present on social media. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, making yeah. videos, making content, responding. But I think, and I, I can't speak for everybody. For me, I feel more connected to my audience on social media than I feel connected mm-hmm. to a lot of people in my life. And I think it's just because it feels safer to be in that space yeah. in a lot of ways. I, I relate to that a lot. Partly there's a, there's a shared culture. There's a shared knowledge base. What I have had a few experiences of coming out in real life. And then like, it's just a bucket of cold water of remembering like, oh, right. These people aren't in this world. When they hear autism, they hear, you know, what I heard five years ago when I saw it on that paper and my stomach dropped. Like yeah. there's something about being connected to people who have a shared framework for this conversation that is very, very comforting. Yeah, I agree. It's very comforting. And I think that's why so many autistic people spend a lot of time in online mm-hmm. spaces. And I think that it's a protective factor, but it's also a way to connect with the world. And mm-hmm. sometimes that can be misinterpreted of like, a lot of people will say, oh, I'm a workaholic because I'm doing work a lot of the time. But mm-hmm. work for me is one of those hyper-focus points and that I enjoy most of the time. Uh-huh. Can't say all the fucking time. But uh, I also have people that I can connect with in a way where I'm like, I feel safe being able to communicate in, mm-hmm. in a way that yeah. I don't have to do in person, where even if I yeah. feel connected to the person, right, like good friends, partners, et cetera, I'm still very aware of my energy and how I'm feeling uncomfortable. And that can create even more complexity when you are with people mm-hmm. who get get you and know you and see you mm-hmm. and you still feel that con- that constant hypervigilance and f- focus on like, how am I engaging socially? How am I feeling in this space? Fucking exhausting. So, so exhausting. So exhausting. I I love what you said about work. I often say work is play for me. And um, my husband for years has said like, you don't really rest. (laughs) Which I now realize like ADHD plus autism, like what is rest? Um, Right. and, And I think normalizing that for some of us, work is play. And so when we talk about doing self-care, it can look like, like for me, it looks like creating content. Like that is a very, that's a playground for me. Absolutely. I love that you said that because I've had some people who have unfortunately lost relationships with because they've said like, you're so driven and achievement oriented and you're so into like capitalism or internalized capitalism and hustle culture. And I'm like, no, work is play. Like work is actually (laughs) the way I connect with the world. And yeah. It just feels like that can be really dismissive if you don't truly understand how how a lot of this is impactful. Um, 
And I think that it's really important to just be able to name it and and just clarify it in that way too. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I also think that comes with a cost as well. Totally, totally. It's it's not the rhythm of the neurotypical culture. Um, yeah, and the the hustle culture. So I feel like that can be a great. I don't know what you're, you'll you think about this, but I think that can be a great replacement. Um, uh, maybe I shouldn't use the word replacement. It activates similar dopamine that less healthy coping strategies also activate, like kind of in the same way a video game, like with leveling up or, you know, dopamine with gambling or alcohol, but in a way where it's actually contributing good to the world if you're, if you're doing kind of advocacy work. And so it, I know for me that it taps into a dopamine structure that feels familiar, but that feels healthy. I love that you just said it that way, because that's so true. And there is some external validation that comes with putting things out to the world that are well-received or, you know, um, supported or um, you have positive interaction with. And there's definitely a component of that too. But you're right, it's hitting the similar parts of the brain. And I can think about it two ways, right? Like I had a gambling addiction for a very long part of my life. This June is 10 years of not gambling. Um, However, you know, it is that same, that, Mm -hmm. that process of that dopamine hit. But if I can reframe it in a way where it's like, but this is positive, this is impacting mm-hmm. people, this is helping people, I can get behind that. It's almost like a harm reductionist strategy in a way. Um, totally. That's how I, like, I, I call it that my dopamine scroll, like I can just tell I'm kind of agitated and I'm looking for dopamine. So I, I might be like going, like looking for food or like, it's just, it's a, it's a dopamine hunt. I can feel it in my body. And so finding ways where I can meet that, that are causing less harm to my body, um, that has been part of my healing in this last year, now that I have more understanding of why I crave dopamine the way I do. I think that's that's a really, I love that outlook on that. Uh, that's such a good reframe and perspective too. I, I mean, I think a lot of this, for what we're both saying, is just so much learning, like you said, so much deconstructing, a lot of advocating and using our privilege to be able to voice things that a lot of people can't too. And, you know, I, I have basically as much privilege as you can have minus the religious component. And I just feel like I really want to be able to continue to speak about something that feels like it causes people a lot of shame in terms yeah. of I can be a therapist and an entrepreneur. I can own businesses and, and all these things. And I can still struggle with all of this mm-hmm. stuff. And it's, that does not mean that it's not hard. And there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff where there is a energy uh, deficit or you're really paying for it in other ways. And I just hope that your platform, my platform, other platforms out there, all the advocates that are out there doing the work that they're doing, you know, that we all know how important it is to continue and how I appreciate you showing up in your space because you have what, like 20 plus thousand followers at this point in time. It could even be more. I may have read that wrong. Um, yeah, I think it's around 26 right now, which is still, I, I think I just pretend that's not actually the case. Otherwise I would never post anything. <laughs> it just feels like five or six. Like of the Yeah, I just people. pretend yeah, it's yeah. like five. Yep. That's good. But you know, it has a trickle down effect. It has a ripple effect, right? Like putting that information out to the world, having it be shared or commented or at least seen and it can have such an impact on people who maybe don't have access to going to therapy or don't mm-hmm. have access to um, certain resources to just have that information available to them. And 
I, I really do appreciate what you're doing and, and how you're showing up. Well, thank you. Same. I have really appreciated your work. And speaking, I mean, we didn't even get into like being a therapist with ADHD autism, but really normalizing that there are ADHD autistic therapists out there and all of the coaching you're doing in the private practice. Um, I think that is just so inspiring. Um, maybe we should have another conversation sometime where I get to hear more about that. Cause I, I am really interested in kind of how you show up in the private practice space, working with therapists. Yeah, that could actually be a great follow-up. And I was literally thinking that before you just said that. And I was like, I don't want to ask <laughs> if you want to do this again. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I think that would be a great follow-up and we could both share our perspectives on that because you are also a therapist about to become a psychologist um, once you go through residency. And that has shown up all my life. And I, I, I do think there's this association that autistic people can't be empathic and and can't connect. And I, that's complete yeah. bullshit, but it is a major, major misconception and it exists. Mm -hmm. And hell, I had it myself years ago mm -hmm. when I was thinking, Me too. About this was Me like, too. you know, socially I can't connect with people. And it's like, well, no, that's not true. It just, we have to take all of these things into account. And, you know, one story that really think I think about right now is like, not just therapy and, and how I've always connected with my clients, but I was in Ireland and I was at the St. Patrick's Day Parade, which was overwhelming enough as, as it could be, even though I, I felt yeah. very grateful to be there. But there was this uh, probably younger kid, like seven, eight years old, who came up with his mom to the front of the parade. And she asked me, like, can he stand with us? I said, yeah, absolutely. And she's like, he's autistic and ADHD. You probably don't know what that means, but like he's overwhelmed right now. And I was like, oh, me too. And then like I had this sensory toy and I just took it out and gave it to him. And like I could see him like self-soothing the whole time and like stimming. And it was really beautiful to witness. And I think as therapists, we are more attuned to, even if I, you know, even if I didn't identify in that way, we are just more attuned to people who are struggling. And I think that's been a beautiful part of this process as well, is just recognizing as autistic people, we typically are taking in everything, right? And yeah. paying attention to everything that's going on around us. So I think we probably have a lot of moments where we don't even recognize that we're doing that. And mm -hmm just the recognition that we just make, we connect, we just connect differently. And I think that is actually beautiful in a lot of ways too. Yeah. That's so well said. That's such a precious moment with that kiddo. And oh my goodness. It was, it felt, I don't know. I, I have such a hard time taking things in, you know, and, and having that experience, but that felt really important to me and just trying hard right now. I don't have kids and I never will, but trying really hard to be able to provide enough resource for parents out there who do and and for people who went through life feeling so just lost and disconnected and like felt broken or like I just don't get why my existence feels the way that it does I I just want to help be a part of um voice out there that can can help support that as well yeah yeah absolutely I do really want to have a follow-up on this and we can talk all about the experience from the other side of the couch too mm -hmm. and how that plays a role in, in how we show up for our clients and and in that world and that space so i would really love to have you back on and you know i really really appreciate you coming on and making the time and just being vulnerable i think it's so important and uh, i hope for everyone listening that this was helpful and i hope that Megan's story and resources can be useful for you. And they've been really useful for me. Um, 
And I do want to just thank you. And I would love for you to share with the audience where they can find more of what you offer because it's, it's invaluable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So neurodivergent underscore insights on Instagram. And then I also have a website, um, neurodivergentinsights.com. And I do have kind of speaking to what you were saying around increasing access for folks who maybe can't get into therapy. I do have a bunch of digital downloads now available and I'm um, working on creating some courses in the future. Um, again, so many, so many interventions need to be adapted to work with ADHDers and autistic people. So I'm in the next year, I'm going to be prioritizing doing more of that. Um, and I've got a Patreon where, so folks who, who subscribe to that, they can get kind of early access to my eBooks and my workbooks that I'm working on as I'm going through the course creation process. So there's a few different ways folks can connect with me. Um, for therapists listening, I do do some consultation, like individual, and I will be starting a consultation group for folks who are wanting to become more neurodivergent informed and affirming in their therapy work. So I also do some consulting. It's fantastic. And again, I can't say enough about Megan's resources and I will link them in the show notes for anyone listening. Um, I think they can be useful in so many different ways. And I just want to say again, I appreciate you coming on and making the time. Thanks so much for having me. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. You're welcome. For everyone listening to the All Things Private Practice podcast, new episodes coming out every Sunday morning. You can like, download, subscribe, and share on all major platforms. If you would like to learn more about coaching with me, private practice and entrepreneurial retreats, podcast information, you can go to allthingspractice.com and you can go to the All Things Private Practice Facebook group. I almost forgot what my Facebook group is called. <laughs> um, and I hope to see you next week. Doubt yourself, do it anyway. And thanks for listening. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.